Good morning. There are three scripture readings this morning. The first is from the second is from the book of 2 Samuel. After the death of Saul, David returned from his victory over the Amalekites and spent two days in Ziklag. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's army camp. He had torn his clothes and put dirt on his head to show that he was in mourning. He fell to the ground before David in deep respect. Where have you come from, David asked. I escaped from the Israelite camp, the man replied. What happened, David demanded. Tell me how the battle went. The man replied, our entire army fled from the battle. Many of the men are dead, and Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. David and his men tore their clothes in sorrow when they heard the news. They mourned and wept and fasted all day for Saul and his son Jonathan, and for the Lord's army and the nation of Israel, because they had died by the sword that day. Then David composed a funeral song for Saul and Jonathan, and he commanded that it be taught to the people of Judah. It is known as the Song of the Bow, and it is recorded in the book of Jashar. After this, David asked the Lord, Should I move back to one of the towns of Judah? Yes, the Lord replied. Then David asked, Which town should I go to? To Hebron, the Lord answered. The second reading is from the book of 1 Peter. In his kindness, God called you to share in his eternal glory by means of Christ Jesus. So after you have suffered a little while, he will restore, support, and strengthen you, and he will place you on a firm foundation. All power to him forever. Amen. And the third letter is from the book of First Thessalonians. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died, so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. Well, as we begin, I just want to know why this is so tall. That's an inside joke. I apologize to those of you who are new. Um, this morning, as, as Ryan said, we're going to talk about Christianity's approach to grief and loss. And, and the, the subtitle is Grieving with Hope. That is our way of dealing with loss, grieving with hope. And, um, you know, just, just let's define our terms real quickly. Grieving is, is a technical term, really, for how we deal with loss in our lives. It's uh, a friend recently said it's the way we metabolize hurt. It's the way we digest it and we process it and we move on from it. I like that. And loss is really, it's any kind of permanent end that we are forced to face. So we, we start with the losing a loved one when they die and that's a permanent end. You, you, you don't come back. You don't reverse it. But there's all kinds of other losses. Uh, there's losses in our, in our work lives. There's losses just as we go through the normal passage of time in our lives. If you have children and you each, each successive stage as they progress, there's progress and there's loss and they're there together. You know, sometimes loss happens to us. Sometimes loss is something that uh, we seem to be fairly responsible for because we make foolish choices or decisions. And sometimes it's murky you know, why does loss come to us? Why does this end come to us? But loss always involves an end. 
And um, just it's kind of, I guess, a full disclosure type of thing this morning. I, I want to share with you just briefly at the outset here that loss is something that's become uh, an unwanted but very real part of my life over the last six to eight years. And um, for the first 40 years of my life, I, I, I didn't really even think about it. I mean, my grandfather died when I was uh, just outside of high school, and I, you know, it was, but just wasn't really, this didn't strike me as that huge of a deal. Um, and other than that, I mean, most of the things that I wanted to do or tried to do, I was able to do. And so, four decades, just sort of plowing forward. But roughly eight to ten years ago, um, the beginning of 2007, uh, we learned that my, my dad, who was kind of this glue in our family, uh, one of my closest confidants and friends, we learned he had cancer, and he was diagnosed with cancer. And about that same time, my wife and I really uh, began to openly wrestle with, you know, was I in the right career for me after 16 years of education and working in it? You know, was this the right track? So there's, those are two big things in our lives. And so... You know, time progressed, 2010, my dad passed away, um, which was very, very hard. And um, the career track was kind of meandered for actually quite a while until I uh, took the position that led us to come to New York. Um, so, so it was just this very interesting time, different slices along the way, but lots of other different things. First child going to college, that's a big deal. Uh, and it's not just paying the bill. There's more to it than that. Um, and then at same, that same year, um, my mom sold our vacation home in Canada, which was like a place we always went to. That was kind of just reminded us that dad wasn't here. And a friend, a good friend, committed suicide that year, 2014. So uh, it's like, kind of like, I didn't really sign up for this, but it just seems like this is something that's, that keeps coming up in my life. And I know it's true for you. I know that almost all of you have experienced some kind of loss, some kind of unwanted or unplanned, some irreversible end. Uh, many of us have lost parents even in the last few months, last year in this church. And so it's, it's, it's where we live. It's part of reality. And, and so this morning we're going to break this into three parts. And we're going to talk about cultural impediments to grieving. That's the first point, cultural impediments to grieving. Culture really doesn't set, up, set us up to do this well. And then we're going to talk about a redemptive, redemptive grieving. Uh, as Ryan indicated, like how, what does God have to say to us? What's it really look like to deal with loss with God? How, how can that work? And the third section is called the ends of grief, the ends plural of grief. So uh, cultural impediments to grieving, uh, gr- redemptive grieving, and then the ends of grief. So we start with the cultural piece. Because our culture does not form us in, generally in such a way that we are prepared for loss and prepared to deal with it. Uh, there are exceptions and some notable ones. Just recently, Sheryl Sandberg, the CEO of Facebook, and her commencement address at Berkeley uh, talked about losing her husband suddenly, about uh, just a little over a year ago. She found him, uh, found him dead in the gym floor on a vacation. And um, it's the first time she's spoken publicly about it. And you can Google it. It's a great article, great piece, very honest about the experience of loss and grief and what that really looks like. And then there's another story that's kind of unfolded rather publicly. Paul Kalanithi and his wife, Lucy, uh, have shared their story. Paul is no longer here. He passed away. Uh, but he was, he was a neurosurgeon resident at, uh, out in California. Uh, Lucy was too. They were both medical professionals. And several years ago, he was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. And he wrote about his experience of facing his mortality. 
And there was a piece in the New Yorker about that a few weeks ago, a few months ago. And um, kind of, I don't know if there's a competition between the New Yorker and the Times, but Lucy wrote an op-ed for the Times called uh, "Just Because My Marriage Ended," or "Just Because I'm a Widow Doesn't Mean My Marriage Is Ended." It's a very powerful, very powerful piece. So every now and then, through all the noise and busyness around us, somebody talks about this, but it's very rare. Very rare. We just don't want to go there. And there's some cultural reasons why that is. Uh, some of it has to do with where we where it came from. And North American culture is kind of maybe unduly shaped by Northern European culture. As many of you know, the Dutch settled this island uh, several centuries ago, four centuries ago almost. And the Dutch aren't really not known for being emotive. No offense if you're Dutch. I'm a quarter Dutch, so I'm right there. Uh, then the English took over, and they're known for the stiff upper lip, right? So it's, this, is not, this is not going in a direction of emotional wholeness uh, at all. And, you know, a lot of Eastern Asian cultures are the same way. You, you just paint on a face of everything is fine. You just forge ahead. You don't emote, particularly negative emotions like sadness or pain. If you've ever watched a video, uh, and maybe this is the culture you come from possibly here as well, but if you've ever watched a video of a funeral in the Middle East, it's very different than a funeral in Manhattan. You know, people wear black. Well, I guess people wear black here too, right, all the time. But, but, but people, they cover, the, the women cover them. That's, that wasn't, strike that from the record. Um, people here are very stoic. People in that culture wail. They literally wail, and they cry, and it's, it's a week or a month-long process. And, uh, you know, we want to get it over in a couple hours and get to the buffet. And that's the way we deal with it. And it's very, very different. But it's the kind of the, even if you're not from a Northern European culture or an Eastern Asian culture, this is a place that really has been shaped by that. So we have a culture impediment there in terms of, uh, of kind of our, our, our national history. There's a second issue. And that is here, we just don't have time to grieve, right? Who's got time for that? Who's got time to stop and think and to feel and to cry and to really enter in to, to the pain of loss? As many as, you, as many of you know, Matt Skogan, one of our pastors here, uh, lost his mother oh, a month or so ago. And Matt and I were corresponding about this sermon and this topic. And he didn't say that anyone said this to him. But he said that there's almost this implied message that, well, it's just a family member. What's the big deal? Let's get back to making money because that's more important. That's why we're here. And I've had other friends, especially in professional settings, receive the same message, sometimes very overtly. You know, it's just time to get over it and we need to get back to what's important, which is the bottom line. And um, so Matt feels that very keenly. And I wonder even if in our space and in the world where we travel, it might seem that to stop, to grieve, to be authentic with our, our feelings might actually make us vulnerable. Like we would fear that we're going to get behind all our colleagues and the people we're always competing with and comparing ourselves to all the time, that it might even put us at a disadvantage because we'd be appeared, we would appear as weak. And I wonder about that. But anyway, in New York, we're all about achievement, and we don't have time for that. And so that's, that's another type of thing, I think, that comes against it. And that's a third, a third thread culturally that impedes our ability to grieve. And it's that loss is sometimes equated with losing. 
The loss is equated with losing at the game of life. And if, you, if, a, if your parent passes away, generally speaking, we don't wonder if you had something to do with that. Except in certain families, but we won't talk about that. You know, in general, we don't assume that. But in a lot of other losses, we kind of think there's probably some culpability. If you lost your job, in the very least, you should have done your homework and seen it coming. Right? I mean, you should have read all those articles on Business Insider about like 10 signs your boss doesn't like you or something. You should have done what you needed to do to anticipate what was coming. And that's, that's what successful people do. And, you know, if your kids go off the rails and they're not, they're not successful, it means that somehow as a parent, you must not have been successful. Paul Kalanithi, the, the gentleman that died of cancer, he had lung cancer. So what's your first assumption about somebody that has lung cancer? He must have been a smoker. He wasn't, but we just assume that. So loss and losing get conflated sometimes in our collective imagination because we just want to win at life. And we, there's an implicit and explicit message that we're bombarded with all the time that if you just get the right intel and you just do the right execution, you will have a good life and you're not going to experience loss. Unfortunately, sometimes that whole mindset is Christianized. And the implicit message, sometimes again explicit, is that if you just have enough faith, if you just serve God enough, if you just unearth enough of your secret sins, God will bless you and you will never experience a traumatic loss. Like it's just going to be a life, and sometimes we use this, you hear this language, a life of abundance, a life of blessing. And the, the sort of subtle expectation is not a life of suffering and confusing wrong turns and struggle. So whether it's inside or outside the church, our culture does not set us up to grieve. It really doesn't. Now, maybe a few of you have had some, you lived in a family where you were taught how to do this, or you've spent some time with a great therapist that helped you work through it. But overall, our culture, whether it's a Christian culture or not, doesn't really set us up to face the reality of loss and grow through it. But Christianity does. You know, biblically rooted, authentically practiced Christianity really does. And we're going to look at a story that that exemplifies that this morning. And it's actually a story from the Old Testament. And it's a story of a guy, about a guy named David. So we have this cultural impediment to loss. That was the first part. Now we move on to redemptive grieving and the story of David. So David uh, is perhaps the most famous and most dominating figure of the whole first section of the Bible. Christians, we divide the Bible into two parts, the Old Testament or the First Testament and then the New Covenant or New Testament. And the Old Testament, which is also the Jewish scriptures, uh, there's one figure that that figures more prominently than any other, and it's David. There's more passages written about him or by him than anyone else. Almost every Sunday when we have a call call to worship here, it's taken from one of his prayers which are called the Psalms. And so he's, he's, he looms large. He was a Renaissance man. He was a warrior. He was a poet. Uh, he's made most famous for his confrontation with a giant named Goliath. Uh, most recently, thanks to Malcolm Gladwell and his book by that title. But he, he's, that's, that's David. And the passage that Jasmine read for us is, zooms in on an event that took place in David's journey and David's life well after Goliath. And I just want to fill you in a little bit on the backstory. So right before the David and Goliath incident, David had an experience where a man of God indicated that someday he would be king. 
His destiny is declared. And then he has this confrontation with this giant and he wins. And, you know, it's an amazing miracle and he's the hero of Israel. And it seems like he's on the fast track, you know, to the executive suite. There's only one problem. He wasn't the king. A man named Saul was the king. And Saul had a son, Jonathan, who was the rightful heir. And Saul was an insecure, jealous, really peevish man. And he decides that the best thing to do with this David who is rising in prominence is to be rid of him. And so David spent 10 years of his life on the run as, a, as like a, a refugee, as a, as a fugitive. The only way he survived, at least the logistics of it in many cases, were because his friend, Jonathan, Paul's son, intervened on his behalf, gave him intel, helped him stay a, hep, a step ahead of the, the angry king. So David is in exile when we join this story this morning. And the first thing that he hears about is that there's been a huge battle and Saul, the king, and Jonathan, his son, have been killed. And we might think that he would be elated, he would be relieved, and that he would just be, you know, calling the council together and taking the throne. And that's not at all what he does. He, he stops right there and he models for us what I think is a very biblical pattern. A Jesus, it was a pattern that Jesus modeled as well and his followers of grief and grieving. And I call it redemptive grieving. And the first thing he does, the first part of redemptive grieving, is he feels the pain. Or he feels the pain. He embraces the pain. It says that David and his men tore their clothes in sorrow when they heard the news that Saul and his son Jonathan were dead. It says they mourned and they wept and they fasted all day. For the Lord's for the for Saul and his son Jonathan, for the Lord's army and their country, it all, this, this, they just stopped and wept. They stopped and felt it. Again, this is part of their culture, but some of us would say that the reason why God embedded His truth in this culture is because it shows us something we need to learn. And that's that the first reaction that we should have to an amazing, a, a terrible loss is to stop and just let ourselves feel it. Just stop and let ourselves, we embrace the pain. I would imagine most of you have had the experience where you feel choked up and you're about to cry and you've stopped yourself. Right? You know what that's like. They didn't do that. They didn't put the brakes on. They let the feelings roll. Feelings only last for 30 seconds to five minutes. That's it. So we don't need to be as scared of it as we are. But they didn't stop it. And when you're in the midst of grief, it's not just five minutes, of course. You get wave after wave of the feelings. But the bottom line is they stopped and they let themselves feel it. They wept, they fasted, they had a cultural practice of tearing their clothes. Uh, sometimes they would put ashes on their faces, which made them look like they were pasty and pale. You know, you can accomplish that by avoiding a shower and just wearing your sweatpants for a few days. But it's the same sort of thing, you know, that you just have this sense that light, the world has stopped and I'm just going to live in the present moment of this pain. 
You know, both uh, Cheryl Sandberg talks about those moments that she had when her husband died and just this overwhelming sense of paralysis and just there's nothing else she could do. She's the CEO of Facebook, but she's just a puddle of tears. And it, She must have been surrounded by a pretty wise community because they let her do that and they encouraged her to do that. But we often don't do, we don't often do that. And uh, when my father passed away, I don't remember everything that happened. It's kind of a whirlwind. We were there, my wife and my sister-in-law and brother, my mom. We were there with him when he actually died. And I remember I held his hand and I felt his heart stop beating. I just wanted to just be in it as much as I could. And I, I know we cried then. And we cried a lot of, in the subsequent days. But we were also so exhausted that we were almost too tired to cry. And um, during his memorial service... Uh, about my mom, my mom, my mother, my brother, and myself, we all spoke as part of the service. So we kind of did the stiff upper lip type of thing to get through all that. But at some point, it just built up to, it was the last song, and we just started to cry, and we just started to cry and sob. And I don't like to do that in front of people. I don't like to do it, period, and I don't like to do it in front of people. But it's part of the process. It's part of just owning the authentic, authenticity of the moment. And, you know, Jesus really modeled this for us. It says that Jesus wept at the funeral of his friend Lazarus. It says he wept over Jerusalem because they wouldn't embrace his message and his truth. And, you know, he expressed his incredible grief and frustration to his disciples in the garden on the last night of his life. And it's not just that he's a model for us. He wants to create in us a sense that God is so with us and present in us that it's safe to allow ourselves to feel the things that are normal and human to feel in the face of loss. That's the first step, is we embrace the pain. We feel the pain. That's what David and his men did. The second thing we do is that we live in the confusing middle. This is, I think, perhaps the hardest part. Because grief has a way, it's it's an ending, and we know that. But we don't know what the future is going to be. And most of us want to get to the future as quickly as we can. As quickly as we can. You know, I wanted to know, what's my mom going to do? What's, how are her finances? What's my responsibility going to be? I'm the oldest son. What, what's this going to take? Um, and she has a house here. She has a house in Canada. What's going to happen? I just wanted to know. I wanted it all resolved immediately. Let's just, come on, let's get the task list out and get it over with. Wisely, she didn't want to do any of that. She didn't want to talk about it. And uh, over time, I've learned, well, that's foolish. You shouldn't do that. And, and that's what these, that's the same thing here. As we see in David, he says, it says that then, so maybe it was the next day, maybe it was for a period of time. It says, David composed a funeral song for Saul and Jonathan, and he commanded it to be taught to the people of Judah. And it's known as the Song of the Bow. So he's an artist, he's a poet, he takes the time. I mean, some of you who are artists know that if you're really inspired and it's really flowing, it doesn't necessarily take a long time to produce your craft. But he does that, and then he teaches people to sing it. And it's almost like he just entered into a period where we're not going to make any decisions. I'm not going to become the, I'm not going to run ahead. I'm just going to sit here in this, this time the end has occurred. I'm in the middle, and I'm just going to sit here, and I'm going to memorialize Saul and Jonathan, and I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. Another way to just frame it biblically is it's kind of a Holy Saturday experience. So you've heard of Good Friday. We remember, we mark it every year. That's an end. Jesus dies. And we, of course, we have 
Resurrection Sunday, and that's the happy ending, that's the celebration. But there's this day in the middle that we don't talk about very often. It's called Holy Saturday, where there's nothing to do but wait and weep to memorialize. So why, why would this be a good idea? There's two reasons. The one is very practical, and the one is very spiritual. The practical reason is because we make terrible decisions when we're in the midst of grief. We make, it's just not a good time to make decisions. The spiritual reason is because if you live your life and surrender to Christ, you can have the confidence that God is going to take care of you. That ultimately, and this is very anti, anti, I've got to take care of myself, I've got to be responsible, I've got to make my way in the world. But if you really live your life and surrender, surrendered faith to Jesus, ultimately God says, I'm going to take care of you. And if God's going to take care of me, I don't have to have it all figured out right now. I can just be here in this. So what's it look like to be in the confusing middle? Besides putting major decisions on pause. Well, my mother, for my mother, she's a writer. And um, she's written over 50 books, mostly fiction. And uh, she just didn't write. I think for a year. Not sure. And she didn't put the pressure on herself to write. She just said, I don't even know if I'm ever going to write again. I remember her telling me that. But that's the confusing middle. We don't know. And she just gave herself permission to be there in this state of pause. Uh, for me, I put all the major decisions about my career on hold. I, I, laid, I laid off wanting to get the checklist out with my mother and have the business plan for the future of the Roper family nailed down. The other thing that I did uh, through the counsel of a friend was I spent time to really memorialize my dad. And I spent some time in our lake house and I... I I made a wall of just remembrance to him, and I just did it. And uh, we found as a family, through some of the changes that we've been through, that we need to do, we've done that as a family too. We'll sit around and we'll celebrate what has been, and we'll talk about what we're going to miss, and we'll just have these moments. That we got, I don't know, they're pretty vivid memories for me, where we've sat together. Somebody always ends up crying, and we cry together a little bit. But you just wait, and you remember, and that's what David did. We really don't know how long that was. Uh, it was longer than a day. You know, it wasn't a Monday. Like, this happened on Friday, and by Monday, he's, he's calling his agent and saying, yeah, I'm ready for that king gig right now. You know, it was, he's, he waited. And then the third part of the process is we move on to the new norm. We build a new normal. So we embrace the pain, and we live in the confusing middle, and then we build a new normal. And that's where the passage ends. It says that... Uh, Back to the beginning of the next chapter. It says, After this, David asked the Lord, Should I move back to one of the towns of Judah? Yes, the Lord replied. And then David asked, Well, which town should I go to? And God tells him to go to Hebron. So, and that began the slow process of David becoming king. But he did move on. He did get back to, well, not back, but he moved on to a new normal. He did begin to act and to move forward after he had taken this time out to feel his pain and to live in the middle and be confused and just just displaced and not know where he's at, what was happening. There's a couple pieces of this that I would say that are important to point out. One is that we really do get back to a sense of normal, that um, 
Cheryl Sandberg and her piece says, you know, you realize, you wake up one day and you realize, actually, that, I laughed today or I had joy today. And, and you, you kind of slowly get back to a point where you realize life can have joy and meaning. And it's really true. It does get better with time. Uh, the second thing is that you don't go back to normal. You don't go back. There is no going back. You move forward into a new normal that God has for you. There's a big difference. There's a big difference. And uh, especially as we walk with each other through times of grief and loss. You know, sometimes we want to talk each other out of our pain, you know, and that's not helpful. We're supposed to mourn with those who mourn. And sometimes we just want to say, why can't you be back to normal? When you go through a loss, you're not going to go back to normal. You're going to move ahead to a new life that is going to be, have some vestiges of the old and it's going to have some new things about it. It's going to be different. We're never the same when we go through significant periods of loss. And uh, my mom, for her, she, she actually did start to write again. And I, th- I think one of the first things she wrote was a book about being a widow called The Widow's Journey. And there's a, a few copies out here put out there. Just If you have a parent who's lost a, their spouse or you want to understand them or give it to them, feel free to take it. But So for her, this is a kind of a new space and she's leaned into it and it's kind of interesting. And I think when I look at our family, it's taken years, but we've all sort of, my brother and I have settled into very different and interesting lanes as, as time has gone by. But it does, it takes time. To get back to normal, and you don't, or not, I, keep, I said it wrong, you don't get back to normal. You get back to a sense of normal, but it's different than before. So that's a process. That's a redemptive process of grieving. We feel it, we wait in the confusion, and then we start to build a new normal. That's what David did. Uh, it's that death, res, death waiting resurrection pattern we see in Jesus. And, and that's the idea of redemptive grieving. But what's the, the third thing I wanted to talk about, because that's the grieving with, this is the grieving with hope, is. What, what's the, what are the ends of grief? And we, we heard two passages this morning. And one addresses the near-term end of grief. And one addresses the long-term end of grief. So the first one's from Peter. He was Jesus' kind of right-hand man. And he writes to Christians who are suffering, who are vulnerable, who are losing property, losing standing, some of them even losing their lives. He writes that, In his kindness, God has called you to share his eternal glory by means of Christ. So after you have suffered a little while, he will restore support and strengthen you, and he'll place you on a firm foundation. Peter's saying it's temporary, and you're going to end up better on the other side. When we do our lives with God, no suffering is ever wasted, ever. It's never, even if it was our fault, we just completely miscalculated or did something foolish. No suffering is ever wasted. And in the near term, it's not going to be forever. It's going to change. Things are going to change. And you're going to be more solid in your standing in life and with God than you were before. Now, you wouldn't choose it. But there's a lot of things in our lives we don't get to choose. But with God, we can have a sense of where the outcome is. And so in the, in the near term... There's this promise. It's only going to be for a little while. God himself, not just finding yourself and finding strength in yourself, God himself will restore you, support you, and strengthen you. He's going to place you on a firm foundation. And then the second end of grief is the long-term end. You know, Christianity has an explanation for where this whole experience of pain and loss comes from. We did not talk about that this morning, but we do have an explanation for it. 
And we also have an explanation for where grief and loss end, where they end. So Paul says, you know, we want you to know about what happens to believers who have died. We don't want you to grieve as people who have no hope. We want you to grieve, but don't do it as people who don't have hope. We believe that Jesus died and was raised again. We also believe that when he returns, God's going to bring back with him the believers who have died. Like this is going to be over. Uh, Ryan read for us a couple weeks ago that at the end, very end of this Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, it says it's going to be over. There's not going to be any more death. There's not going to be any more pain. God's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. That there's going to be an end of endings. There's going to be an end of loss. There's going to be an end of grief. That at that point, I think, we'll be able to understand uh, the, the full upside of all the horrible things that we've been through. And we're going to see how God brought those things to good. But it's going to end. It's going to be over. And there's not going to be grieving or vulnerability to loss forever. And so there's these two ends to grief. One is in the near term. It's going to be temporary. And it's going to strengthen us and make us better. And in the long term... It's going to be over. It's going to be erased from our experience of reality. And it's going to be redeemed. You know, as I think about all this, I, um, I really hate this sermon. Some of you are saying, yeah, I hate it too. Yeah. <laughs> no, I really hate it because in some ways it normalizes loss as part of our lives. And I'm really still looking for the magic pill or the technique to be immune from it, to know that it's not going to affect me. And um, it's just not the way it works, I think. Doug Gresham, who was C.S. Lewis's stepson, and he wrote the, the foreword to Lewis's great book on grief called A Grief Observed, he says that every human relationship ends in pain. A cheery thought, right? But it's really true isn't it? It's true. Because either it's already a painful relationship and you're relieved when it's over or it's a wonderful relationship and you're grieved when it's over. You know, some of us, you know, the worst thing we can imagine is losing a spouse and we're, we're holding out for, uh, you know, the movie to the notebook ending, right? But that's not really what happens. Most of the time. Every human relationship ends in pain. I think there's some truth to that. Some sobering truth. I don't like it. And I want to I be immune to it. I was at a conference and Ryan's uncle Rick was speaking and he said, you know, we like to think of life as kind of a train that runs on a monorail like the trains in the Disney parks and it's just one track and there's good sections and there's bad sections and we want to find the magic formula to keep us in the good sections. But after many, many years of ups and downs personally and as a, as a servant of people, he says, yeah, I don't think that's reality. I think that there's actually two tracks. It's a train. It's not a monorail. And one track is joy and it's wholeness and it's a sense of, of peace and one track is struggle. And suffering. And most of the time, we have both of those at the same time. And I think that that's true. I think that um, that's really life. It's really life. It's not all good, it's not all bad. And what's an amazing relief to me is that God meets us right in the middle of that. 
and he gives us a sense of his, himself and his presence and a security where we can face the difficulties and the challenges and we can you know, feel it and we can wait and then we can ex- realize that things are going to be new again, but they're going to be different and that's going to be okay. He really does that. And then along the way, we have other moments where we just think, this is way, life, this little slice of my life is way better than I ever could have imagined and way better than I definitely deserve. So a Christianity's approach to grief and loss, that it's never wasted, it always can be redeemed, and eventually it's going to be erased forever. Let's pray.